Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia. And I'm talking today with Mart Kuldkep. Mart is Associate Professor of Scandinavian History and Politics at University College London. Mart is an expert in Scandinavian and Baltic history, politics and security, including a focus on the Baltic Sea region. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Mart. Thanks for inviting me. So I wanted to focus, first of all, on Estonia. We've seen since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February this year, that Estonia has really stood out in terms of the magnitude of support that has been given to Ukraine. And by some analysis, it's suggested that as a proportion of GDP, Estonia has actually given the largest amount of aid to Ukraine of countries so far, which is quite striking for a relatively small country. As someone who is familiar with Estonian society and politics and history, did that response surprise you or how do you make sense of it? It didn't surprise me at all. And if anything, I may be a bit surprised that other Eastern European countries haven't, some of them have, but not, not all of them have, have followed quite as strongly. I think what makes Eastern Europe more broadly and also Estonia different from many Western European countries when it comes to supporting Ukraine and uh, countering Russian aggression is the kind of immediate sense of the security threat that uh, Russian aggression uh, poses to European and international security. In a way, this is explainable by sort of geopolitical uh, realities, because the countries that border Russia, uh, obviously, uh, they feel the threat more acutely, and they feel that they uh, have to act more resolutely when uh, countering it. And it's not just about providing uh, aid, it's also, for, it's also about advocacy, it's also about supporting Ukrainian interests in all kinds of international formats and uh, organizations, which is also uh, something that Estonia has done a lot. But for many Western European countries and for you know, countries in the West more broadly, the Russian war in Ukraine is primarily a humanitarian crisis. They see the impact uh, on the people and they see the impact on infrastructure as well. And they think about it in terms of having to help Ukraine. And this is a very common perspective. And it's not quite the perspective that the uh, Baltic states have, that Eastern Europe has more broadly, and that Estonia has. They definitely have a more security-focused um, perspective uh, on those uh, events. And from their point of view, the Russian threat is not just a humanitarian threat, it's a military threat to themselves, it's a military threat to Europe as a whole, it's, an, it's a threat to the international rule-based uh, order and international law. But what's also important, and what has really consolidated Estonian support for Ukraine, is the fact that it's hardly possible to find a family in Estonia that hasn't experienced the uh, impact of Russian aggression you know, one way or another. You can't find a single family who hasn't had a member that's been deported to Siberia, has died in Siberia, has been shot by the Red Army, has been a member of the resistance movement. So when those events unfolded in late February, and even more so when they began unfolding, which happened in late autumn last year, 
Estonians never questioned that this was real. They never questioned the Ukrainian grievances. They never questioned the uh, Ukrainian point of view because they had themselves seen the exact same thing, if not in living memory, then definitely in generational memory. This was the time the grandparents in the 1940s, you know, when, the, when similar events uh, took place uh, in Estonia. So some Ukrainians have been saying that uh, what they find uh, really comforting about the Baltic states is that they don't have to explain themselves. They will be believed. The Baltics will accept uh, their narrative, so to say. And uh, I think this is really visible in, in all kinds of support that Estonia has uh, given to Ukraine, from military to humanitarian to political. So I think this is what explains the very strong response from Estonia. It spans across the political parties, spans across the whole of the society. And uh, in an interesting way, it also spans the linguistic communities in Estonia, because as you know, 25% uh, of Estonians are uh, Russian speakers. And I think uh, right now, the inter-ethnic relations in Estonia uh, are better than they uh, used to be before the invasion that has you know, made some of the previous fault lines in the Estonian society become uh, less salient. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by what you just said. I guess what's interesting to me is whether any of that sort of Russian information operations still has any kind of traction or the full-scale invasion of Ukraine has really led to a situation where almost everybody now agrees that Russia is in some ways a dangerous actor I mean, all political parties agree, and to the extent they uh, represent the population, you know, this is the uh, conclusion one could draw. I don't want to overstate my case. Obviously, in Estonia, as in all other countries, there are people who are pro-Russia. Some of those pro-Russian people are themselves Russian speakers, but not all of them. There are Estonian speakers who can be uh, pro-Russian. I would say, though, that uh, they are a small uh, minority. For many people who just want paying attention before the full-scale invasion and who maybe, you know, didn't think of themselves as particularly interested in foreign policy. The war has really brought uh, brought back many of those stories that grandparents, you know, were telling them when they were young and has brought back many family histories and has brought back, you know, a kind of existential fear that I guess always latently been there but uh, now of course there is a war going on so close to the borders of the Baltic states it has given everything a kind of moral clarity that I think is uh, helpful in terms of you know unifying the society for a common goal and the goal of course is to support Ukraine and make sure that Ukraine uh, wins this war. And you mentioned also that Baltic states could really understand Ukraine also in the lead up to the full scale Russian invasion because they feel as well the possibility of that threat of, you know, maybe territorial incursions. Baltic states are a part of NATO. And so I wonder, like, to what extent do populations really feel that a military operation or a territorial incursion from Russia is a real possibility? In the run-up to the invasion, I think there was a real, real split between people who thought that this wouldn't happen because it wouldn't make sense, it would be counterproductive, it would backfire, which it obviously has, and between the people who thought that, well, yes, but this wouldn't stop Russia. 
many area studies scholars and historians and uh, military strategists, they were often in this uh, second camp, whereas people who were experts on uh, Russian politics, they didn't think it would happen. So in, in a way, you kind of had to have an intuition or an almost an emotional feel to think that this was a, a real possibility, apart from like all the intelligence that the US was uh, making public at the time. As for Estonia itself, yes, it thinks it's under threat, but it's a systemic threat. It's not just a threat against Estonia alone, it's a threat against NATO, it's a threat against the West more broadly. I don't think anyone in Estonia thinks that in case there is a Russian incursion uh, into Estonian territory, this war would then be limited to Russia and Estonia alone. I mean, obviously, there is the NATO Article 5 to take into account, but what we also need to take into account is the Russian war planning. And from what we can see from Russian large-scale military exercises, they have never modelled a war against uh, Estonia alone, or even just the Baltic states alone. They have modelled a war against the West that would also include Finland, would also include Sweden, would also include other countries in the region. So I would say it's fair to say that Estonians are concerned, but they are not concerned just about themselves. They're concerned about everyone. And they feel that they are the ones who kind of need to get the message across to everyone that Russia is a threat, not just a threat to Estonia, but a systemic threat to the West uh, as a whole. The Russian threat against Estonia is nothing new. It has been going on since the early 1990s. There have been many, many propaganda campaigns, measures to restrict free trade. There have been uh, military threats going uh, way back. So it's uh, nothing new. And uh, those kinds of uh, low-level threats would probably continue. There is uh, no reason to think that Russia would back down for some reason. It hasn't happened yet, uh, at least. Whether there would be an actual full-scale war uh, against Estonia, I think it's unlikely. It's uh, not impossible, but it's uh, unlikely. Still, we can't you know, preclude the possibility that Putin might miscalculate, might think that Article 5 is not effective, and that the Baltic states is the weak spot in NATO. The effectiveness of the NATO collective security principle could be tested. So could happen, unlikely to happen, even now unlikely to happen, but we still need to be prepared. Another thing I might uh, actually say about this is that the Russian army is getting destroyed in Ukraine. So from the military point of view, the Baltic states have never been as secure as they are now. Mm. Yeah, that's also something that puzzles me in the sense that Russia is incurring such costs in Ukraine and yet so far doesn't seem in any way to have influenced Putin or his regime to try to back down from the full-scale military operation in which they've decided to engage. I think what we need to take into account is that Russia is an autocracy and an autocracy is a very fragile type of state. So, you know, while it might seem like Putin can do anything and can, you know, take any decision and this will be accepted by the Russian society because uh, he has total grip on it through propaganda and so on, actually he's quite constrained in the sense that uh, he can't really back down without endangering his regime. He can only escalate because mm. of his uh, previous actions. So in a way, he has painted himself into a corner. He can't afford to lose because if he would lose, you know, there would be some kind of fundamental changes in Russia and his own survival is no longer guaranteed. 
And what exactly will be perceived as a defeat? It's, it's hard to say for us, but the safest course from his point of view seems to just infinitely escalate as long as possible and to the point where the West backs down. Of course, this is not at all in Russian national uh, interest that uh, his regime doesn't care about the Russian national interest. They care about the regime's survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for political leaders in democratic countries, military failure usually means getting voted out of office. But for someone like Putin in a very authoritarian regime, it may mean the end of certainly his regime, if not himself. So, I mean, you talked about how there is that close relationship between Ukraine and the Baltic states, and in particular, the way Baltic states are really supporting Ukraine in this war. And other countries have been as well, but it's certainly been striking the way that's come from Baltic countries. Once we see an end to this phase of the war, which I hope we will see sooner rather than later and with some kind of good outcome for Ukraine. Do you see that as affecting the political balance in Europe more broadly in that maybe there'll be even closer relations going forward between sort of the Eastern European states or that maybe they may have a stronger voice as well within the European architecture? Because we're seeing, I think, leadership coming from those states when we look at the way that Europe is responding to the war in Ukraine? Yeah, I think at this point, it's pretty much inevitable that the power balance in Europe, even after the war, is going to be different. I think it it works on both sides. So Eastern European solidarity is definitely a factor to be reckoned with going forward. It has existed before, but never quite in the same way as it does now. The Eastern European states have never before tied their interests and fate so closely to Ukraine as they are doing now. Conversely, also, Ukraine is appreciating the level of support that it is getting from the Baltics. It's not going to forget the support it got during the war, even after the war. And many Ukrainian refugees, hundreds of thousands of them, have by now spent months uh, living in Eastern European countries. And when they return, they will take with them the personal contacts and experiences they acquired, and even the languages they learned in places like uh, the Baltic States and Poland. So I think the close ties will persist. On the other hand, the Western European states, like Germany in particular, they haven't completely fulfilled the expectations that were put on them. And so I think they will lose out in uh, political influence going forward and Eastern Europe will uh, gain uh, on the other hand. And this, I think, uh, in a way is going to fix something that has been a a historic injustice because when the Eastern European states were reintegrated into the West, let's say, back in the 1990s and the early 2000s, they always accepted the Western leadership in terms of how they should think of their history and how they should think of their future. And now I think you know, the Eastern European point of view, bolstered by political leadership in, in questions like supporting Ukraine, I think they're interests and uh, their narratives will be so much more important going forward and will really become a counterweight to the Western European point of view, which I think is completely justified and that's how it should be. 
Mm-hmm. It makes sense. And in some ways, many things that those countries have been saying for many years have now been proven to be true. And finally, I want to ask you about something else that I'd like to better understand. So it's always seemed very interesting to me that we have this weird little chunk of territory of Kaliningrad, which is technically Russia, but is landlocked by Baltic countries. Do you think that the war in Ukraine will lead to some kind of serious escalation of tensions around Kaliningrad, given that it's technically Russia, and increased security concerns in the Baltic Sea region? I mean, Kaliningrad has for a long time been a potential flashpoint. That's where the Russian Baltic fleet is stationed. It's heavily militarized. So war in Ukraine or not, it's it's always been a a threat to regional and uh, European security. But yes, what you say about it being landlocked, it of course uh, makes a difference as well, because uh, a lot of transport in Kaliningrad goes through Lithuanian mainland. This creates all sorts of possibilities for, you know, tensions escalating, provocations. And we have, of course, already seen some Mm -hmm. of that when Lithuania decided to implement the EU sanctions regime as was jointly agreed with the European partners. And then this uh, created a big international political issue because those sanctions then directly uh, affected Russian transports from Russia to Russia through Lithuania. So I I think it's, it's not impossible that something like this will pop up again. And that this might then end up uh, being the point uh, where the tensions escalate to some kind of a new level. What exactly this might be, I can't really tell. But what is important to also say about Kaliningrad is the role of Sweden's and Finland's uh, NATO accessions, mm-hmm. uh, which will seriously... I think, decrease the importance of Kaliningrad in terms of uh, regional security, assuming that everything goes well and, and Sweden and Finland have their membership applications ratified by all the current member states. And NATO is going to take over all the almost the whole of the coast of the Baltic Sea. So the Baltic Sea is becoming a NATO lake, effectively. And uh, this means that the Russian capabilities that it has in uh, Kaliningrad that are very much focused on area denial and the access, the idea that Kaliningrad and the capabilities there could be used to stop any NATO reinforcements from uh, reaching the Baltics in case of a uh, Russian invasion. And this is going to lose importance because there will then be uh, other ways for NATO reinforcements to uh, get to the Baltics, particularly through Finland and Sweden. So I think, you know, it's definitely a potential flashpoint, but the longer term, I think it's going to become less important. Mm -hmm. And really Sweden and Finland joining NATO, which I believe will be fully ratified by all member states, does provide also that increased security to the Baltic states as well. In combination with Poland and in the Baltic states, they help to complement the regional security because they have, uh, you know, quite uh, impressive uh, air forces, which the Baltic states don't have. And and more generally, there will be ways of doing joint defense planning that make regional security both more rational and cheaper. Those are some very positive developments that, again, have come about because of the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine. I think it's fair to say that uh, at least from what we can see now, it has backfired immensely for Russia. 
And the future, in, in some ways, is probably going to be better than it was. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Finland and Sweden joining NATO has been a boost to NATO, which you know was certainly not Putin's intention when he decided to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Thanks, Mart. I appreciate you being on the podcast today and sharing your perspective and insights. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.